Hey, it's Jordan, and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. I can't wait for today's interview. He's considered one of America's top cops. His name is Joe Kenda, head of the Homicide Division from Colorado Springs, who during his career solved an amazing 356 of the 387 murder cases he investigated. A staggering accomplishment in law enforcement. Now, millions of us are familiar with Joe from his many years on television, starring in Investigation Discovery's Homicide Hunter, Lieutenant Joe Kenda. And now he has a terrific new book called Murder Triggers. And we'll talk about some of those triggers. Fear, rage, revenge, money, lusts, and yes, occasionally insanity. Joe has seen the worst and most horrific in society, but he's always worked tirelessly for the victims and pledges never to forget them. So please enjoy a conversation now with one of this country's finest detectives as we go on mic with Lieutenant Joe Kenda, Homicide. I'll tell you, this is a page turner and it's all true, which makes it amazing. As we said in the introduction, Joe Kenda, Killer Triggers, and he's the star of Investigation Discovery's Homicide Hunter and a new show uh, debuting, I think, this year. And Joe, uh, a pleasure. I'm glad that you're safe and well and enjoying the opportunity to tell these stories. I am safe and I'm well, and I've found (laughs) telling these stories to be therapeutic, which is why I chose to do it. Why do you think people are so fascinated? I mean, readers and watchers, you've got millions of people who've seen these television episodes across the world. What is it that intrigues us so much? I think it's the same thing that has intrigued people for a long time. There are people buy mystery novels. People used to buy the Police Gazette back in the 1930s. There's a certain amount of identification with people. We're not jet setters, not movie people, not million dollar motors. People like people are accustomed to have the same job, live in the same neighborhood, drive the same car, yet they engage in this violent behavior. People are fascinated by it. They want to know why that happened to them and hoping it never happens to them themselves. You take a very uh, important personal pledge uh, throughout your career you took uh, and followed through with an amazing success rate of convicting these people who did heinous things. Still gnaw at you that some of them got away, some of them weren't solved? It must. Of course. I think about all 31 cases I didn't resolve every day and every night. Hmm. Now, three of those have been resolved in the past two years by advances in DNA technology, but I didn't do that because Casey and I did in the car was prank. So I'm down to 28, but still, you always second-guess yourself. What did I do wrong? What did I miss? What did I forget? What did I not do? Yeah. It does drive you crazy. Yeah. It's interesting you say cold case squad. We have a terrific group of guys here in Boston with the BPD, and uh, over the last couple of years, they've been able to finally crack some cases that are 20, 30, 50 years old. The point has to be made that there's never a time limit on murder. No, there isn't. And the reason there isn't is because things change over time. Technology advances. People have provided an alibi of fallen of love or lose their fear of the person. People get overcome by guilt that have knowledge of the event. And if you go back and ask them, they say, well, you know, I lied when I talked to the police years ago. Happens every day. There are things in the book that are almost Hollywood, and then there are things in the book that are real cop things. <laughs> I guess the almost Hollywood things is the good cop, bad cop routine, which people make fun of in movies, but it really does have a lot to do with how you crack a, a, a case and how you get somebody to fess up. Uh, can you describe an example of what might happen? I know you told that one story about you're stirring coffee in a crazy squad room, and for some reason that's what was the success for you to get through to a particular suspect? 
Share with us a story. Yeah, there's always something that they're all unique. All interrogations are unique. You have to judge your your adversary. How smart is this guy? What's his level of education? What's his criminal experience? Is he a bad guy? Does he have a long criminal record or does he have no record? What do we think he's in here and how much do we know? The real key is like court. You never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. And then you can gauge the reaction to see if they're truthful or lying. And the pupils of the eyes are committed to tell that. If you think he's lying, his pupils turn to pinpoints when he's mm-hmm. lying. Uh, little things. You know, it's always the little things. It really is. But there is a, a time when you can be... I never raise my voice to people. I never use profanity. But I use different techniques. One technique is to ignore them. You walk mm-hmm. in a room and a guy says, I'm not telling you nothing. Okay, you have to tell me your name. What's your name? But don't look at him. Look at a document, fill out the name, as if he's a non-entity. What's your address? What's your so-and-so? And And never look at him. And never ask him a question. And eventually, humans will say, well, are you going to talk to me? Why should I talk to him? And still don't look at him. Well, I want to tell you, well, you can tell me whatever you like, if you like to. And they're going to launch in. People suffer from diarrhea of the mouth. They'll tell you things they wouldn't tell their mother when they're frightened. Yeah, there's so much psychology here, Joe, and I'm just curious, even though I read about you and I read the book and all that, where your innate sense of people comes from? Does it come from childhood, growing up in an environment that you grew up in, or are you just one of these guys who reads people well? I have a combination, probably. I grew up in a coal mining town in east of Pittsburgh. My family were coal miners. My grandfather was killed in a coal mine. You get very dialed into people mm. uh, when you're in that environment. Most of them are foreigners, didn't speak English. Everybody from Poland, everybody from Eastern Europe that I lived around. My name is Slovenian, Kenda. So you get accustomed to gauging people, even when I was little. Who's dangerous? Who's friendly? Who really only is acting friendly, but they're not friendly, and so on. And over time, you hone those skills of understanding humans, because they're very, very different mm. from anything else. One of the things that struck me was the importance of the crime scene in that first few moments when you or an investigator is on the scene. Talk a little bit about why that's so critical. Well, it's the most critical thing, that, the only mistake some policemen make, is they establish the theory of the crime before they get there. Based on limited information, they've, they've decided what's happened here, mm-hmm. and they beat up the facts to fit their theory. It doesn't work that way. A crime scene will speak to you. It only whispers. You have to listen carefully, but it will speak, and it will tell you things about the person you're looking for. Is this a case of overkill? Is it rage? Is it very personal? How was death accomplished here? Was it a gun? Because gun provides distance. You don't get dirty. You stand away from the victim and blast away. Or is it human hands around the throat? You don't want to just kill him. You want to feel him die. There's a difference. Little things like that that you can pay attention to to give you a drift of who you're after. And in some cases, there's one chapter in particular. Well, there is a crime that's ultimately adjudicated, but there's no actual head-on assault when a mother and four children or so are found dead. And it's assumed that they're murdered uh, outright, but it turns out it's something that you discovered the hard way. Exactly. Carbon monoxide poisoning Mm. is an insidious killer. And a carbon monoxide replaces oxygen in the blood 900 times faster than oxygen enters it. You don't need a full tank of gas to kill yourself in a garage. Right. Two or three minutes will do the job. And it was curious to me why these people would die like this. And I had to 
furnace examined and determined it had been tampered with. Now, if it's been tampered with, what's the intent of that? Is it just somebody that didn't understand the furnace? Or is it somebody who hates these people and decided they need to go away? So you're always raise, you always raise questions when you find things. It's interesting to look at triggers, and so many of them have similar bents in terms of revenge or money or sex. Is there one particular overall trigger that you think is the most, I don't want to use the word popular, but the most likely in, in most murder most cases? Yeah. Yeah, 65% of all murders in this country occur because of narcotics. This country has an insatiable taste for drugs. And drugs cause 65% of all murders in subcategories. Uh, attempted robbery of a dealer, a failure to pay for your drugs, attacking someone because you need money to buy drugs, and so on and so on. 65%. 35% accounts for everything else. And only 3 to 5% are stranger killings. So you have a 95 to 97% chance, 98% chance of knowing who is taking your life in one way or another. Hmm. Wow. I have so many questions, so many things I want to chat with you about. <laughs> so I'll just fire them off at as we go. One of the things that really impressed me, but when you have to approach the family member of a victim and your take on what you would say when somebody close to them had been murdered, I thought this was exceptionally important because... It's just like uh, reporters who stick a microphone. How are you feeling, young lady, when your whole family got wiped out? I hate that. But tell me oh, about course, your approach. What was what has been your approach to uh, to the to the? My family? approach is to be direct and upfront and honest and immediate. They already know. They already know, Jordan. When that door opens and you're standing there in a suit and holding a badge and somebody is not home who's supposed to be, you can see it in their face, and you just. You directly address them. Do you have a son named so-and-so? Yes, I do. I'm sorry to inform you that he is no longer alive. I stay away from bullet words like mm. murdered or shot or whatever. It's not much, but it's something. Mm -hmm. And I wait for the reaction, and I've seen everything from stunned silence to laughter. You just wait for to see what's going to happen yeah. next, and then you proceed with trying to comfort them. Yeah. The worst thing is when people say, it, the police provide closure when they make the arrest. That's nonsense. There is never closure. Losing a loved one is a hole in your heart that never heals. Mm. That person is never coming back. No matter what you do to the perpetrator, you've lost that person forever. There's no closure. Maybe there's some feeling about it, but there's not closure. Time is the only thing that closes that, and it doesn't close it completely because right. nothing ever will. I think most common sense people understand that. One of the things that I, I took from reading Joe Kenda's new book called Killer Triggers is, and it's not a, a big portion of the story, but it does weave its way through, and that's the impact on your family, on your wife, who's, oh, God yeah. bless her. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can't help but take your work home with you, at least in your head. You know, how did you deal with it, and how did your wife deal with it? I, did, I dealt with it very badly. And my wife dealt with it very well. Uh, I met my wife in high school. We've been fortunate. We've been together all our lives. And we've been married for 53 years now. Ah, uh, nice. Which is a long time. But when I met her, she was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Irishman with a temper like a chainsaw. She still is. <laughs> I don't understand her, but I'm working on that. All right? But she was an RN, and she had training in psychiatry. And she, I'd come home, 
I'd be sullen and quiet, and she'd say, "What happened today? I don't want to. I don't want to talk about." It. And that was very difficult for her. And she should have shot me in the face, probably on more than one occasion, but she didn't. Thank God. And finally, she said to me, "You won't talk to me, but you need to talk to somebody because you need to rid yourself of these. You need to decompress from these emotions." Mm -hmm. So we'd select Friday nights as the night to sit down and have a few toddies and go over things. But I would still not go into all of the details. So I'd recommend to any young officer, when you start and you're married, you have to include your wife. You're not protecting her by shutting her out. You're making her lonely and making her wonder if you still love her. You have to share some of this nonsense. The difficulty with police work is there's no opportunity to consider what you just saw or what you just did. You go from one to the next to the next. Push that into a box until the box overflows. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. Uh, it's not like a, a television series where there's one case a week and you're working on multiple cases, uh, as as we know. Yeah. There's a, a whole series of things that the book covers, and uh, one of them is staring down at somebody who has evil in his eyes and heart and brain, and it's just something that you know and you can spot and what that's like because some people are regretful they made a mistake a horrible life-changing mistake but they may not be patently evil what what are your thoughts on the sure. presence of evil there you often hear people say there's good in everyone well i disagree not everyone most people you're right do something emotional something stupid and they're sorry for it too late, of course, but they are sorry. The person who has no emotion about it, who has eyes like a shark, those are the people that need to be in a box because they are incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. The sociopaths of society, there's not many, but they exist. They're only capable of one emotion, which is rage. Don't make me mad or I will kill you, mm -hmm. and I won't remember it five minutes later. Yeah, they are not capable of any other emotion. That's a tough enemy, isn't it? I mean, when you think about oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Are they more prone, though, to, because of their presentation, as we might say in society, they are likely to be boastful and make mistakes and screw up so they'll be caught, or are they more wily than we should suspect? They are more wily, but when you confront them in an interrogation, if you approach them right, you appeal to their ego then they want to tell you because they're proud of it. They are. They're proud of what they did. And if you make them think that they're some sort of criminal genius, and it sure is amazing what happened. Well, you know why it's amazing? Because I did it. Oh, really? <laughs> I've had that happen on more than one occasion. It's just remarkable. It's uh, Because to them, it's like, well, I'm going to go to jail anyway, so I might as well get I had a guy who we were convicted of him of 15 different murders. But he always said he did 23, and he was amused that we didn't know about the other eight. It was a game to him. Yeah. I'm not telling you about those because I'm smarter than you. Mm. Well, I suppose in some ways you are, but we did convict you of 15 murders, and you're on death row. So I'm not on death row, but it seems that you are. Right. And, so, and there's still, it didn't make any difference to him. Right. Yeah, well, it's all right. You still don't know about those, do you? Oh, chilling, chilling, absolutely oh chilling. And sure. by the way, we should tell people where you were head of homicide for so many years. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Chicago. It's Colorado no. Springs, which, of course, is still a 
major metropolitan area, but one doesn't think about murder when one thinks of Colorado Springs. One thinks of... Well, one does not, and one shouldn't. It has an average to below average rate of homicide. But when you add them up over a period of my career, it adds up to a substantial number, but mm-hmm. ultimately it's about 19 a year on average. And it, it, murder is, uh, is cyclical. It's like a national biorhythm. Mm-hmm. It, it have, you have good years and bad years. If murder's up someplace, it's up every place. If murder's down someplace, it's down every place. It's very weird, but it's true. Right now, as we speak and record this, Joe, murder is up in many of the major cities. There are a lot of reasons, I think, for that. Yes. One one of the most important reasons is, is the uh, attack on police and certain constituencies limiting police power and money and so forth. Not to get too political here, but uh, what are we going to do about this problem? And what's the role of the police going forward? And you know, how can we instill confidence in the ranks because it's been such a tough slog? There have always been those periods of time. If you remember Rodney King, if you remember other events that have occurred of a national attention matter that have put the police in the, their turn in the barrel, happens all the time. You have to understand when you take this job, you do something that's very, very different. First of all, you take an oath, and it is an oath. And then they give you a gun and a pocket full of bullets. And it's probably the first job you've ever had in your life where somebody gave you a gun and said you're probably going to need that. It is a very different line of work. You have to decide when you're young that if someone does something unspeakable to someone else, you have two choices. You can remain seated or you can stand up. I always stood up, and I was proud of that. But it does take a certain individual who is willing to do that and willing to take on those challenges in an effort to change this small part of the world, which is what I did. Mm. I asked you at the very beginning about why people watch and read about true crime as much as they do, how fascinating they are. And I, I agree with you. It is a fascinating thing to think about the guy next door or somebody we know and love who could be a, a victim or a perpetrator. But does all of this serve, I think, another purpose, and that is educating people? Because I get a real education in reading the book about uh, oh, why people do the things they do and also how you in the field, and I'm you're representing police, manage to do what they do under very arduous circumstances. You're absolutely right. I mean, the point of the book is that it's been my experience. When humans allow emotion to overcome their judgment, they revert to their worst possible instincts. Morality melts. Consequences no longer exist. Limits are not to be observed. Only the thrill of the bloodletting prevails. We're not that far out of a tree. We just like to think we are. Let me switch gears for just a moment before we let you go. I <laughs> read, because I'm in the business, and I read about your work on the show uh, for many, many years on Homicide Hunter on Discovery. And one thing that really blew me away was the way you handle narration and uh, you know texturally bringing the people along without a script, uh, according to what you wrote. Yep. You, you basically just talk, which is an amazing which is an amazing skill in television or radio, for that matter. Good for you. I never, I never had a script. I, I, when I first opened it, they said, well, here's your script. I said, did anybody tell me a policeman? I'm not an actor. I said, I got over playing dress-up when I was five. You should have, too. <laughs> oh, they didn't like that. Not so much, no. So I'll tell you what, turn that camera on, and I'll tell you about this murder case. If you don't like it, we'll talk about your script. 
And after I did that, they said, we don't need the script. Okay, thank you. That is one of my favorite showbiz stories. I love I love that story. I really do. Can you talk a little bit about what you're working on now, uh, video-wise? Well, we've got this new uh, program called uh, American Detective. And my purpose in it is to demonstrate that there are skillful detectives who work very hard for little or no money and suffer the slings and arrows of the public and the press to resolve murder cases, to stand in the victim's shoes because no one else will. And I do that from all over the country. I'm not the Lone Ranger. I'm not the only one who answered the call. And we take cases that nobody knows about. Unless you live in that area, you never heard of it because the national news never covered it. There are mysteries that are very complicated, that are involved in small towns, sometimes very small towns. A town in Vermont of 7,000 an island off the coast of Virginia with less than a thousand people on it. Those kinds of places where these crimes occur because guess what? Humans are there and they interact. And and one of the takeaways from all of this is that Joe Kenda and people like you are standing up for the victims. The criminals are fascinating and evil is always interesting with a small eye, but there's something important about remembering those that lost their lives to these people. I had many families tell me the same thing. When we were at the scene or shortly after the scene, and we have no suspects, we have no nothing. Many times they'd put their arms around me and say, I don't want my loved one to be forgotten. And I will not forget your loved one. I have two things about me you should know. I don't forgive, and I don't forget. Well, I am not going to forget this interview anytime soon. <laughs> and I really, <laughs> I really appreciate it. And you are, I want to say, a, a leading figure in both media and law enforcement. You've crossed over and, and bridged the two with such a plum, such ease. And it's really a helpful thing and a very entertaining thing at the same time. So uh, congratulations on the new book, Killer Triggers, and uh, keep on doing what you're doing. You're, you're an inspiration, Joe. Well, it's very kind of you to say that, and I appreciate you having me, and I'm glad we had a conversation. Joe Kenda, the book once again is called Murder Triggers, available everywhere. Speaking of books, please check out my memoir called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. All proceeds benefit Children's Hospital Boston. And very soon, the audiobook version will be available, and we'll let you know when. Thanks again to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions in Boston where we produce the podcast. And of course, a special thank you to you, audience members from now around the globe. And if you subscribe to the podcast and like it, I sure would appreciate a five-star review. And also thank you for passing it along to friends. Really appreciate that too. So until next time, this is Jordan saying as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.